You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, who features a man who spent nearly 30 years as a Navy SEAL and has gone on to do some great things in his post-military career, including a fondness for whiskey. I am excited to hear about all of that. But uh, I hope you guys have recovered from last week. I know I have. It was a little bit of, a, of an emotional episode. I'm glad that I've got such positive feedback from it. And I certainly appreciate uh, all the notes that you guys have sent along, whether it's on our YouTube channel, uh, on, on Apple reviews, or just dropped into the DM on my on Hazard Grounds Instagram, my Instagram, whatever it may be. I certainly appreciate uh, a lot of you reaching out and uh, continue to, uh, to, to go back and look at last week's episode. I think you'll value it if you missed it. But uh, before we get to our guest this week, our normal reminders, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, uh, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and uh, all you got to do is it will redirect your rate to Amazon. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we will donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So again, hazardground.com. Hit the Amazon button. Works right from your smartphone, too. Redirects you to the app. All your credit card information is saved. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. As I mentioned a moment ago, you can watch all of our Hazard Ground episodes there and download the Kill Cliff TV app because all of our episodes are there through Kill Cliff and Kill Cliff TV. Don't forget about our friends at Kill Cliff and KillCliff.com. Clean energy drinks uh, benefits the Navy SEAL Foundation. I know our guest is going to uh, be very, very happy about that, but some of the best clean energy drinks out there, guys. I mean, Kill Cliff just makes superior products. Uh, check them out at KillCliff.com. Order all of your Kill Cliff. All right. Uh, and Apple reviews, please continue. Leave those Apple reviews. We're getting better. I keep getting notifications uh, that we're moving up on the uh, Apple podcast chart. So we need your help. Five stars. Tell us why you love the show. All right. This week's guest, as I mentioned a moment ago, spent 31 years in the U.S. Navy, 28 of that inside the Naval Seal, Navy SEALs and inside Naval Special Warfare. He was enlisted for 15 years first before converting to officer where he retired as a lieutenant commander. Um, and he is now the president of Jewel TV, which is about to debut a Veterans in Transition series. Uh, we'll get to that. He is also the ambassador of a, of a foundation that he, or organization he started himself called Warriors and Whiskey. Uh, he is Tim Fedrick joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Tim, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Hello, everyone. Nice to meet everyone virtually. <laughs> Let me uh, correct one thing real quick with Tom Julian mm-hmm. of Jewel TV. He is the president. I'm one of his executive producers. I'm the host for the Jewel TV television series. But Tom Julian is the president. All right. Uh, well, what you guys are doing there is fantastic. Uh, and as you told me before we started recording, a 10-part series coming out later this fall. We'll get into all of that uh, coming up here. And, and I know that you are uh, – we're going to talk some whiskey here, which I'm, I'm definitely excited about. Brown liquor is a uh, – uh, well, it's, a, it's you may as well just tap a tap a line in my veins here. We'll just we'll just say that much. I, I, I love to partake in, uh, in a lot of whiskey and bourbon, so we'll get to that, Warriors and Whiskey. But 31 years, an amazingly long time. Uh, within the United States Navy, obviously, 
Um, your career started way before the 9-11 world. So how and why did you sign up? Well, that's a uh, funny story. Some of my buddies probably get on to me about this. <laughs> uh, I was in high school in uh, 1990 and, uh, in Seymour, Tennessee. And at that point, I had several small colleges offering me a baseball scholarship. So I fully intended on uh, going to one of those small colleges and playing baseball. And uh, in the summer of 90s, when I graduated high school and uh, I saw the movie with Charlie Sheen, Michael Bean, uh Navy SEALs. And, I'm like, and that's really the first time I heard about anything about the SEALs. Uh, so I saw it. I thought it was very cool. Uh, I was already on delayed entry at that point, uh, or I, I was enrolled, whether I joined the service or not, uh, was still up in the air and a lot dependent on those baseball scholarships. But um, it, that convinced me that it was absolutely the right thing to do. And uh, what better job can you have doing something different every day, shooting weapons, jumping, uh, whether it be static line, free fall, going to sniper school and so forth. So once I saw that movie, uh, my mind was made up, and uh, I joined the military in September of 1990. Anybody try to talk you out of it? All my buddies uh, that were going to some of those colleges that I was looking at for baseball um, definitely had my ear, but but my mind was made up. And um, I figured I would do college a little bit later anyway. What did your your parents say? when you, was, you were going to forego this baseball scholarship to go in the Navy? Well, um, my, my dad, he uh, was in the Army and then later the National Guard. But um, uh, my mom, she was happy with whatever I decided that I wanted to do. So um, uh, I didn't have much uh, kickback with uh, what I was choosing to do in my career. So that, that was pretty much easy day. They were both supportive. My dad, if anything... He was probably wondering why Navy, uh, why not go Army. But uh, other than that, not a big deal. So when you got in, I mean, obviously you knew you wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Were they handing out Navy SEAL contracts back then? No, and uh, I kind of messed up because I didn't come in. They had the die fair program uh, back then, and you come in under a um, a six-year commitment. And uh, I didn't do that. And my uh, recruiter, and, and they were kind of all over the place and trying to get uh, people to join. And, uh, and at the time, I didn't really know what to believe. So um, I didn't come in under the die fair program. And uh, from 90 to 94, that's partly why I ended up in the fleet. The fleet turned out to be very good for me. But I was in uh, on the USS Arleigh Burt. It was a pre-com, uh, pre-commissioned. So I was a plank owner of that. And uh, in hindsight, um I wouldn't trade that tour for anything. It definitely prepared me to work with the fleet uh, once I got into Naval Special Warfare better, whether we were on ships, and uh, at times we were because we had ARG Alphas and ARG Bravos with the amphibious readiness groups back then. So uh, it, it turned out to be really good to do that fleet time, get my ESWAS, went to SAR school, uh, went to SEER school up in Maine in the winter. And uh, so I did everything I could. The ship was real good to me with uh, allowing me to prepare for BUDS. They knew that was what I wanted to do. And in 94, I was off the BUDS, class 199. You know, I, I, I've had 20-plus years in the military. Uh, and every time I hear somebody say that they went to SEER school, I always say that's the one school that I would go to over any other one if I ever had the opportunity. That's the school, like, I really, really wanted to go to. 
Uh, I was never given the opportunity. And as soon as I heard about it um, from from a couple of Green Berets that I deployed with, uh, you know, I'm like, that's cool. I want to try that. I don't know why I want to try it, um, but is was it the same back then? Because kind of the idea of POWs changed in the post 9-11 world. Well, um, you know, I mean, they definitely have advanced uh, courses now. And I, I have a, a pretty in-depth uh, personnel recovery background. Uh, so uh, when I went to the one in Maine, it was FASO Training Group Land up in Brunswick, Maine. You also had one for the Navy out in San Diego, and then the Army has their courses. Air Force has their gotcha. Marines go to there. So, so everybody, uh, everybody's course, I guess, is set up a little bit different. But survival, evasion, resistance, escape is uh, uh, the acronym, and uh, you go through different phases over that eleven to fourteen day period. Some are longer, some courses longer, some shorter. But uh, I can't say it was any. It's any different now. You just have specialized courses that add to that level C course, and that's what our uh, 11-day, 13-day SEER training course is. It qualifies you for a level C. You can do level B online and so forth. So you're off to BUDS. Now, uh, I I wouldn't call that movie research (laughs) that you did for BUDS, but uh, was there any other research that you did to kind of know what you were walking into or you were comfortable with just going into it fairly blind? No, um, I, you know, um, I didn't do much research on it. I probably should have, <laughs> but uh, it turned out to be a, a great pairing for me. Um, so in, in hindsight, I, I wish I would have researched it a little bit better. I wish I would have researched the Die Fair program, which ended uh, soon after I came in. So uh, no one would have that option nowadays to go into that program. It's it's a much better process uh, in preparing people for buds that they have now than when they did back then. Um, and then again, I, if anything, I wouldn't have went to the fleet. But uh, I have to say I, I took a lot of value in, in moving forward uh, with how we interacted with the ship's crew, the sub's crew, and uh, did business uh, and, and some of our guys that didn't have that fleet experience, uh, I think it was very helpful to them. So so in hindsight, uh, other than not going to the fleet and going to uh, straight to BUDS, that's the only thing that research would have done. So I, I knew I wasn't going to quit. I knew I didn't want to go back to the fleet, even though I mentioned I had a very good time there. I learned a lot. It just wasn't for me to do for a 20-year-plus career, where in NSW it was. Uh, more difficult part of buds for you, the physical challenges or the mental challenges? Oh, definitely mental. Uh, I, I would say to anybody, if, if someone wants to go to buds, if you can do the screening test to get in, as long as you don't quit, uh, you, you're good to go. You just have to adjust as the course moves along. The uh, the physical training gets more uh, intense, but but if you can do that test to get in, and uh, to start buds, then you can finish buds. It's as basic as it gets in the teams. That's why they call it basic underwater demolition seal training. Uh, so, um, for me, the most difficult part. Uh, I showed up in September, didn't form up to the beginning of January. Is that cold water? If anybody's ever been in the water, especially in the winter in San Diego, even though it's a uh, it's a great climate to live in. That water gets pretty chilly, and um, 
and, and I guess in hindsight, I would have much rather have gone through in the summer. The cold water was the most difficult part for me. That can make you, it's pretty painful, and uh, that can mess with you mentally, especially when the sun goes down. And you got several nights where the sun's down that uh, during Hell Week where you got to deal with it. Push yeah. through it. Quit. Never quit. I, I always ask this uh, of guys who went through through buds because I, I think the sort of mental dynamic, not even the mental challenge, I just mean the mental dy- dynamic of watching everybody else go through it with you um, is always, you know, like a study for me in, in psychology. But I'm sure there were, were guys around you that when you first got in, you looked at him and said, there's no way that guy's quitting. This is going to be easy for him. And you watch them one up there and ring the bell and your you jaw hit the floor. And then conversely, you look at other guys, there's no way this kid's going to survive this thing. And the next, you know, next thing you know, he's the superstar stud that everybody's following. I mean, was there stuff like that going on when you went through Buds? Well, I learned, if I didn't learn it in high school and learn it from my family and upbringing, I learned to uh, never judge a book by its cover. Right. And uh, in SAR school, same thing happened. I went to SAR school in, uh, in Jacksonville. On the surface side, because you have an air side as well in the Navy, but I went to the surface SAR swimmer school in Jacksonville. And uh, there were several people, and just looking around, watching them PT, uh, watching them do the scenarios that they put us through. And uh, there were some people I felt would definitely make it through, and they didn't. And there were some people that were struggling every step of the way that, that uh, could have ended up leaving the course at any point. They made it through. Uh, same thing in butts. There, there's some people that can do everything, for example, better than me. They can run better. They can swim faster. They can uh, run further. Uh, they can do the old course way faster. They can shoot better. Uh, but uh, some of those guys are not used to being challenged either. And, and it's one thing, if nothing else, that I try not to do, as easy as it is sometimes, is to judge someone by what you see. And, uh, and especially until you get to know that person. Was there anybody who you kind of latched onto at Buds that was like the one person who uh, maybe emotionally helped you get through it when you were just sitting there contemplating, why did I, why did I choose this? <laughs> there must be an easier way. Was there, was there somebody that was there with you the whole way? Well, you definitely, uh, we ended up graduating in 199. And this includes our rollback of 29 people. Um, you, you definitely rely on your swim buddy. And, and in, in the early days of Buds, you go through a number of swim buddies, especially in Hell Week, especially, at least in my mind, in the winter with that cold water. You would turn around and your swim buddy would be gone. You'd get another swim buddy. But, uh, so I, I went through a number of swim buddies. But if there is somebody that you rely on, and you do uh, uh, forge some close relationships throughout Buds and uh, I still talk to some of my buds mates today. Um, there's a couple that are still in, believe it or not. But um, the uh, so so swim buddy without a doubt, and then uh, over time, especially after buds, you you start to build uh, those lasting relationships. And uh, and and at the end of the day, all you got is when you leave the service, your numbers up. You got your family and your close friends and your close teammates, uh, which are your close friends. So. Uh, definitely they help. Uh, my swim buddy helped and, uh, I just went through a number of them. So, all right. So, uh, you graduate buds, uh, circa 94, early 95, uh, mid 95, June, okay. uh, 95, I went to airborne course down at Fort Benning mm-hmm. and then, uh, back to seal team three. 
All right, so it's mid-95. Gulf War's in the rearview mirror. Blackhawk Down's in the rearview mirror. And everybody's happy in the world. Gee. Uh, Without kind of, you know, it's hard to gloss over six years, but um, and, and clearly there are real-world missions you guys were conducting. Uh, we, we know that now. Uh, we didn't know that back then, or at least we were just uh, in the dark, pun intended, on, on what SEALs did back then. Um, what's the operational tempo like prior to 9-11 for you? Well, um, I did three platoons at SEAL Team 3. It was Bravo platoon back-to-back-to-back. The first one was an Oreg Alpha, and that was another benefit of the, uh, the fleet time. I was a radioman in the fleet. Um, and uh, the platoon that just returned from their deployment that was about to start their workup needed a radioman. And we were an Oreg Alpha that was going to be signed to the uh, USS Essex battle uh, or Oreg Alpha. And, um, and uh, we were on the Cleveland. Our leadership was on the Essex. And um, I was supposed to, and I was lined up to do uh, STT, SEAL tactical training at the time. Now it's called SQT. But um, since they needed, they were starting to work up, they needed a fleet-trained radioman, um, or they wanted that anyway. Uh, they heard that I just showed up from the fleet and uh, was there and available. So I went straight into a platoon, straight into a workup. Uh, when my friends, they were all out camp garden and uh, doing other things that new guys do until you get to try it in. Uh, back then, we also had a probation period to where you were on probation for a minimum of six months, uh, going through all of your PQS, uh, your uh, personal qualms, and then uh, you get boarded uh, before you earn your trident. Uh, some guys go through that within their six months. So there's, there's a few guys that uh, throughout that probation period, it just don't work out for them, and um, they end up leaving the community for one reason or another. So... So that probation period back then, it could be a little intense. And, uh, but, um, I went straight into the ARG Alpha. We did our year and a half workup. And then we did, I think it turned out to be seven months with the ARG Alpha. And in our case, 11th mute. This whole experience, when you get through this first sort of run with the platoon, does it sort of live up to what you expected? What you saw in that movie years ago, and every like, okay, I'm, I'm here. This is what I wanted. This is what I was hoping to do. Does it feel that way? Uh, some of the workup, especially when you get into the advanced training, because uh, uh, most of the uh, the CQC and uh, uh, urban warfare that you would see, the mount training yeah. that or the mount uh, operations that you would see in that movie, uh, definitely resonated with me. But uh, and that. Um, other than that, no, a lot of the workup did not, uh, but some of the things on the deployment started too. Right. Uh, but definitely the, the CQC and the advanced training, pretty much everything that's under that advanced training umbrella did resonate and did, I I did have that to fall back on, but. All right, so again, fast-forwarding a little bit here, because 30 years is hard to span without sitting here and talking for 30 hours. Uh, where are you on 9-11? I was, um, I had just got through with SEAL Delivery Vehicle, uh, the pilot and navigator course down in Panama City, and reported to uh, SDV Team 2 in Little Creek, Virginia. That command is back now. If people are listening, because for a while there, they it, decommissioned it, but it is back and up and running again, and it has been for a couple years now. Uh, but I showed up there, and I was going through uh, 
chief select training. And that's about a month, month and a half long process where you go from E6 to chief petty officer. And um, we were going through various uh, drills and scenarios, to be honest with you. And uh, the, uh, the, the cadre that was putting us through um, that learning experience, I'll call it, they stepped out of the room. And they came back into the room, and uh, they told us basically just to leave base. We kind of thought they were messing with us, to be honest with you. Uh, but they told us to leave the base, get off the base as soon as you can. Definitely check in with your command, because we were all working at Naval Special Warfare Group 2, with which is the ISIC, or it's the uh, Echelon 3 command for all the SEAL teams on the East Coast. So, so we were assigned to Group 2 at that point. We got off the base. He told us to turn on the TV, and then we saw the uh, towers coming down in a lot of cases, at least I did. And um, so uh, a new world in the military right. after 9-11. Did you think that you guys were immediately going to be pressed into action? Without a doubt. Uh, I, I, we didn't know which teams, and, and at that time everything was so dynamic and, and moving at uh, such a quick pace. Uh, it didn't take long for our personnel to get into theater, whether that be into Iraq or whether it be definitely into Afghanistan. What is your first taste of the war on terror? Uh, where do you go? When do you get there? Well, um, we, we would fly commercial a good bit. So obviously flying commercial change, uh, at least in the near term, right after 9-11 happened, changed big time. But uh, I was... Uh, I was on SR, Special Reconnaissance Training, and I was the chief working for a, uh, another senior chief in getting the Special Reconnaissance guys, because uh, you had the SDV side and you had the SR side at SDV too. The SDV side uh, drove and navigated the boat and worked as mission specialists out of the back of the boat, and the SR side we did over the beach sniper work. So the majority, if not all, of the uh, personnel that was on the SR side was either snipers or they were soon to go to sniper school. So at that point, I was not a sniper yet, and uh, I uh, was a chief of uh, training department in training up the task units to deploy overseas for the SR side. Um, and I did that for about four months, and then the – He's a mentor of mine, the guy I was working for, the senior chief. He got called back over to Kosovo, so I stepped right into the LCPO role uh, for a brief time period of SR training and uh, did that pretty much until I rolled into a task unit myself. Uh, So at first, training our guys to deploy is what I did for the first year and a half uh, or a year until I got into a task unit myself, and they were training me. Was that disappointing for you no because you we needed to train and at, at this point uh we had uh some deployment scheduled and uh the there, there was only and there is still only two seal delivery vehicle teams uh one out in hawaii and one in uh, uh virginia beach so so we had our mission set and uh some of our guys did go into afghanistan um some did support missions off of uh or in iraq uh, but but that was my role at the time. It was uh, getting personnel ready to deploy wherever they ended up deploying to. And uh, so I accepted that role. I learned a lot and uh, went to sniper school 
uh, once I was relieved as the LCPO, and then I joined my task unit, and then we deployed and did some great things and on the SDV side of things off of Eastern Africa. Okay, so when do you what do you get to Iraq first or Afghanistan first? Well, I I did uh, uh, my work with SDV. Um, in in short, Iraq first, okay. but. My work with SDV was off of Eastern Africa, right? And, and obviously, I did the work up uh, to get me ready for that, and we, we did some uh, great things uh, in that area or in that region. I mean, to this point, um, before you know, between Africa and everything you did prior to nine eleven, have you had a actual combat experience to this point yet? While, while I was at SDV, no. Okay. Um, the closest I came to the, that. Um, was uh, Yemen. We had we were the first ones to go into Yemen, I want to say, in quite a while. I think it was like 10 to 12 years. There was an ODA. Uh, I can't remember what group they came from that uh, was there ahead of us. But for a while, we didn't get into Yemen. And I want to say it was either 98 or 99. Uh, we were working in. Um, initially, I was working out of Sana'a, uh, which is where our embassy is, and then uh, later Hudaydah. And... Um, uh, and, and some of our fellows were working down in Aden. And uh, speaking of that, uh, one of my ops officers that, or my ops officer that was on the um, Arleigh Burke with me, uh, his ship, the Cole, was off of Aden. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple months out after I left Yemen, the Cole got hit down in Aden, and our sister platoon helped them out with that. So, wow. so e- even though. Yemen was not as hot, so to speak, as it is today uh, or four years ago. There was a lot of bad things going on uh, in, in and around uh, the ports there, uh, especially between Hudaydah and Aden. And, uh, and then that, that happened. I happened to be in Jordan when that happened, and I got that word. And that was a shame because uh, I'll, I'll just say that that commander would have went a lot further in, in his naval career, uh, unless he would have chosen to get out. Uh, so I was very sad to see that, uh, but it happened. And uh, it happened while I was in Jordan, only a couple months after I left him. So that would be a better timeline to go off of instead of 98-99. Sure, makes sense. Um, you get to Iraq when? In old- I went to Iraq for the first time as soon as I got out of Knife and Fork. I, I went to – we have a we had a LDO – and uh, CWO program. It's limited duty officer, chief warrant officer program. That's how I was commissioned. I went from senior chief petty officer, uh, E8 to uh, O1E. Um, I didn't account for that initial pay cut that uh, <laughs> you don't usually take pay cut, but I sure did because I missed my safe pay by a couple of cents. And then uh, I, was, I was pretty junior as a 13-year senior chief too. So at the end of the day, I definitely took a pay cut until I made O2E. But, um, so I went to Knife and Fork School. It's where, it's what we refer to it as. People probably get mad at that when they hear that, some people anyway. But um, they prepare you to be an officer. Uh, they, uh, going from enlisted to officer, they teach you the ropes. And a lot of value out of that school. I learned a lot. And uh, so I did that. And as soon as I graduated uh, from that course, SEAL Team 1 is where I reported to. They were in Iraq. Instead of staying on beach deck, uh, they asked that I come over. I was going to be the training officer um, uh, or the uh, CSO, the combat systems officer. Uh, when I got to 
Team One after we returned from deployment. So, so I finished that four months. I think it was four and a half by the time it was all said and done, and uh, uh, we came back to Coronado. But but that was the first time in Iraq, and I actually had it really good over there. What uh, year? What year was that? That was 06. Okay, well, it was 06. I got commissioned in January. Went tonight uh, to the LDOCWO course in Pensacola. It was the last courses to be in Pensacola that year before mm-hmm. they moved up to Rhode Island. But that was 06. Um, um, uh, by the time I got over there, it was late February, early March. And I think we got back in July, June, July. I was one of the last to get back. Uh, and we, we were there at the exact same time. Um, What's that? We were there at the exact same time in Iraq. If you if you were in Baghdad, we were there with you. If you were at, if you were at the Navy SEAL compound, I was right next door. Well, well, you have you have out near the airport where we had some of our uh, people, but yes. but I was at RPC. That's where I was. the The army took RPC. Yep. During that deployment, we you ended had... up moving out to Fallujah. Yeah. Uh, that was that was me. I, I was. That's funny. Like literally, work. we might have sat in the same meeting at some point in time. Wouldn't doubt it. But uh, RPC had a pool right outside of my room. Yep, that's Nobody the one. I, I was in that pool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I swam um, in your in the Navy SEAL pool. I, I more stayed on the Army side, but every now and then I got invited over to hang out with the SEAL guys and uh, uh, on your side of RPC behind that big metal gate double door that you know shut you guys off from the world. Um, go up to Falcon Palace. So Falcon, that was our DFAC. Yeah, yeah. We were there at the exact same time. Crazy small world. Crazy, crazy, yeah. crazy small world. Um, I got to tell you. So, uh, well, I want to back up real quick. I want to find out if we know the same guy. But uh, I I wanted to ask why you had made the switch to officer. Like, what was the real impetus for it? I mean, did you feel like you tapped out on the enlisted side? No, absolutely not. Uh, I really enjoyed my list, enlisted time. And um, uh, I had a good career, both. Uh, my whole career, it was it was a great career. Uh, if I had it to do over again, would I have chosen to go officer? You know, I don't know. I debate that with myself all the time. Uh, because I, I I flew through the ranks up to E8. I, I, yeah. I feel like I would have been a very young Master Chief. I had my Dolphins for all of the time that we did those ops off of uh, Eastern Africa with the sub. I had my ESWAS. Uh, I had my FMF. At the time, it was a ribbon from working with 11th Mew with all we did from them. So so SEAL, ESWAS qualified, uh, submarine qualified, FMF qualified. Uh, I was set up pretty good uh, to continue my career uh, enlisted-wise, make nine, and then do all of the billets that um, uh, you would want to do as a SEAL Master Chief Petty Okay. Um, but uh, so, you, you know, there, there was several things that drove me to go uh, the officer route, and, uh, and uh, so that, that's what I ended up doing, and uh, I'm just not sure if I would do it all. Again, I, I don't know if I would have stayed enlisted. Uh, welcome to the dark side. What can I tell you? I mean, we're not we're we're, we're a peculiar bunch as officers. It's a it's a different world. Uh, that said, I, I I won't ever remember his name, but I can remember exactly what he looks like. And if I describe it, he had like blonde hair, and his face looked like it was it was carved out of a modeling magazine. He was the only Navy SEAL I would ever see in these meetings. He was about like maybe stocky guy, like five nine, maybe five ten. Uh, I'll I'll have to go. I think I got a picture somewhere. I have to go find his name. 
Um, but he was the only Navy SEAL that ever came to our meetings at RPC when we had him up at the big palace on the hill. Uh, he was the only one who ever came there uh, from an operations standpoint. We had a couple, of, and I remember that, that movement to Fallujah uh, because I was actually asked to do a lot of convoys out there. Um, I was in charge of uh, the uh, ISOF, uh, one of the battalions in the ISOF brigade. And so uh, we had we had a bunch of supplies that needed to be moved out there to uh, to the Fallujah area. But nonetheless, he was the one guy I remember. I, I, and the only reason I think anybody remember him because he was just like if you were to draw a Navy SEAL and like you know put him in a magazine, that's the dude you'd pick. I'm trying to. I, I'm drawing a blank on that's who okay. that. That's okay. Uh, me and uh, this other ensign and I. Uh, I'll leave his. He was in 03 at the time. That I do remember. He was in 03. Okay. I, I have an idea who it was, but uh, but I was uh, in getting prepared for when we returned, this other incident and that. And, and then we knew all of the different uh, platoons and, and, and task units or troops, whatever you want to call them, that was at all the OWL stations. So between Baghdad, between Fluja, Habani, and Ramadi, we were always. Uh, as 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 ensigns flying around, and we were both ex enlisted, so both right around fifteen, sixteen years. So so we knew a lot of people in the teams, and it actually couldn't have been better for us because depending on what operations were going in all of those different areas, then that's where we would be. Right. So if there was some key events going on, then we would get on our helos and uh, schedule the helos, go out to Ramadi, go on a couple ops with the people there, and then. Uh, same thing with Fallujah, um, and uh, we stayed busy that way. So, so being in around RPC, and definitely after we got everything to to be built out in Fallujah in that open field that they gave us, or open area of the desert, um, we uh, that that's what we did. So, so I missed out on a lot of the uh, the little things that happened when that camp was being set up. Um, and uh, but but we had it pretty good. It's, it's about as good as two instances can have it, whether yeah. they used to be uh, enlisted or not. And uh, learned a lot. Got a lot of good ops in, especially in that Fallujah Karma area, uh, da- dangerous area at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but learned a lot and wouldn't trade that time for anything. Is is this where you have your actual first combat experience in the war uh, on terror? Yes. Yeah. For, for me, yes. Uh, is is in 06 what? in. Uh, in all of those different areas. Now, you had had 15 years enlisted and done a variety of different things, both in an instructor role and sort of an operational role and everything else. Um, after that first combat experience, is is something, does it feel different? Does it seem different? Or was it just another day for you? No, uh, I, our training pipeline got us pretty prepared for, for, for what we expected. And you know it's a dynamic environment. Every situation is different. Uh, things can go astray in, in uh, combat at any point. Uh, and then you just fall back on your training, you react, and uh, uh, you do everything possible to bring your people home. How many more deployments do you go through uh, after that first one between Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, once SEAL Team 1, mm-hmm. uh, we got back from that deployment. We started went right into our workup for another Iraq deployment, deployed again in um, – uh, September of 07, returned May of 08. Uh, and, and in that time, I was uh, primarily working out of Haditha and, uh, and Al-Assad. So I was between those two 
first three months heavy on Aditha, uh, and then uh, toward the end of the deployment, uh, a lot of uh, Alice side time. That's where my officer uh, thing went from uh, doing what I was doing as enlisted to, all right, we're going to make you an LNO over here to RCT-5. We're going to make you an LNO over here to the JPEG. There's some relationships that uh, need to be built over there. So, uh, so that's where I really had a different uh, kind of line of work going from enlisted uh, and just going from operation to operation to uh, being an officer and getting more in that leadership. That uh, Was that tough that, for you to sort of be taken out of that, that, for lack of a better way to phrase it, you know, uh, it, in the well, action to on the sidelines? <laughs> I wouldn't call it on the sidelines, but... I yeah, mean, I mean, it's not the sidelines, but I, I just, you know, there's a much more operational tone uh, to what you do on the enlisted side than the planning and meetings and leadership stuff you have to do on the officer side. Without a doubt. I mean, that's our snipers. That's our breachers. That's her. Right. Uh, that's our dive supervisor. That's our jump masters, you know. So the enlisted side, it's hands-on. Uh, you're you're the actual uh, door kickers, trigger pullers, whatever you want to refer to them as. Mm-hmm. So it's night and day uh, because you go into a, uh, a, a not necessarily more of a leadership role because uh, that's definitely throughout the uh, enlisted ranks and senior enlisted, definitely from the LPO on up. But um, leading petty officer uh, for LPO. But um, but I expected it, and, and that's part of uh, your training process, going from enlisted to officer, regardless of what pay grade you do that transition at. Um, so so it's expected. It's just uh, watching your your fellows and your teammates uh, go out and then come back. It's just a whole different world and. Uh, it's just something that once you make that switch, you you should expect it, and and, and then it definitely happens. So that was kind of hard. All right, so uh, we've moved forward into uh, 2008. Um, do you leave? When do you leave SEAL Team One? Do you leave SEAL Team One, and what's next? I leave SEAL Team One and uh, go to Special Boat Team 22 okay. down in uh, Stennis, Mississippi, on the Stennis Space Center. Uh, another. Uh, so, so I had the SEAL teams at t- three and one. Uh, had the SEAL delivery vehicle teams, um, vehicle teams, uh, SDV two, and uh, so now it's a whole different um, ball game at within the special boat teams, especially down in Mississippi, to where it's the riverine team. Uh, you got your two coastal teams on the east coast, SBT twenty, and then on the west coast, SBT twelve. Deal with the open ocean, coastal environment, and then with the riverine uh, environment down in Mississippi. So I grew up down there. I uh, grew up in Louisiana, born in Natchez, Mississippi. Um, uh, that's close to Slidell. That's where I live, but Louisiana will always be home. Um, in Pensacola, it's close enough to home without being in Louisiana, but uh, so that's where I call home now. But um, uh, I spent almost five years there, uh, a little over actually. And uh, from middle of 08 all the way to um, pretty much January of 2013. And uh, started out as the training officer and training our riverine troops, um, uh, getting them ready for deployment. And uh, our riverine troops were doing some great things, by the way, over in, uh, in Iraq uh, while I was the training officer. So, so we were preparing the, uh, the troops that were designated to go over there, not everybody got to go to Iraq. Some were going down in South America. 
Uh, but uh, but that was my job in turn our, our troops wherever they ended up deploying to as a training officer. Tim, you seem like you've had a pretty non-traditional SEAL career, all things considered. You know, I mean, look, I've talked to hundreds of, of, of SEALs, and, you know, th- there's, the, there's the brand of guys who want to spend their entire time in the SEALs on the teams. Like you said, kicking down doors, pulling triggers, bringing bad guys to justice kind of deal. Um, and then there are other people who, on the officer side, you know, do their team time, but they understand there's other benchmarks they have to hit and go on. But it, it just kind of seems you, you've, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which way you sort of feel about it, leading to the question of what I want to ask, but you've been given a lot of sort of very unique assignments along the way. So is there, regret's not the right word, um, but it's more one of those things, do you wish that you have had more of a traditional SEAL career at some point? No, uh, we, we discussed the officer enlisted uh, transition, right. but but aside from that, no, I wouldn't trade my career for anything. Our, our boat teams do great things, uh, whether they're in that riverine environment or in the coastal environment. They do great things, and that was good. Uh, it, some people look at it as a diversity tour uh, to where uh, some guys will stay in the SEAL teams and and uh, go up to the 06 level command echelon three, and then back to the SEAL teams for the majority of their career. Uh, and, and they're perfectly happy with that. That's that's for them. But with me and going from uh, the SEAL teams uh, and, and knowing and understanding clearly how the SEAL teams operate, going to a SEAL delivery vehicle team, wouldn't trade that time for anything. And then doing the same thing with the special boat teams, it's, it helps me understand the Naval Special Warfare community better if nothing else. And uh, I, I will always, uh, those are a lot of key takeaways to where if I wouldn't have went to those commands, those, and, and they do business completely different, uh, then, then I, I wouldn't know near as what I know today. Uh, and I wouldn't have the memories that I have. And uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for my career uh, that I've had. And uh, at this point, I wouldn't even change anything. It's just, it is what it is. So after the boat teams, where are you next? Um, let me um, – with the boat teams, I mentioned I did five years there. Right. And uh, so uh, great great tour as a training officer. And then uh, I got asked to stay on there as a Riverine Troop Four commander. So, uh, so that's what I did. And, uh, a lot of time down in Columbia. I happened to be the uh, NSW uh, TE OIC. We had 24 of us that was a part of uh, – the uh, 2012 uh, Cartagena, Columbia um, uh, period. And some people probably remember that. Uh, the Summit of Americas, 2012, Cartagena. Um, but um, that was one of the first things I did when I got into theater uh, in Columbia specifically in uh, early 2012. You mean, just for clarity, Columbia, like South America, not like Columbia, South, South Carolina. Okay, yeah. South America, Columbia. <laughs> Just, um, when uh, you first said it, I'm like, okay, water. Columbia sounds like it's near water. And then I'm like, wait a minute. No, the other Columbia. <laughs> you'll probably get a lot of call-ins with uh, the uh, uh, Columbia in 2012 uh, when Obama came down to Cartagena. There were some things that happened uh, during that period. But I was the NSWTE OIC for that. And uh, that was a learning experience in uh, providing maritime security for the president. And uh, so, so another learning experience and something that uh, it, you take with you throughout your career and how that whole process plays out and works and uh, any lessons learned that uh, happen in, in trips and um, uh, events such as that one 
that you just take with you moving forward. So, uh, so I bring that up and, uh, uh, in 2013, I go back to, uh, once I left special book team 22, I go back to group three and we skipped group three the first time. Uh, I had a brief stint when I got commissioned at Naval Special Warfare group three in, uh, Coronado. I later went back and, and group three is, is no longer around as group three. Um, uh, it's another group now, but, uh, at the time SDV one and SDV two fell under group three, uh, which moved out to Hawaii in, uh, the middle toward the end of 2013. So another big move. Yeah. I mean, you've been, you've been scattered to the wind your entire career. I mean, that's, it's kind of crazy to think of all the places you've been sent again, I mean, obviously, in the special ops community, yes, that's that's pretty much par for the course. But I, I just, comparatively speaking, to what I've heard from other guys, you, you've you've had quite the quite the go. Yeah, um, a lot of different, very different types of commands, and um, uh, you, you definitely learn each stop different ways of doing business, and uh, in, in some cases, different parties and and so forth. And but Group Three is the undersea SMEs. <laughs> Throughout all of SOCOM, so I, I'm, is there any part of you that is saying to yourself, "Am I ever going to get to Afghanistan?" That's coming. <laughs> I mean, I, but like, That's are you fun. thinking like they've sent you all over the world, Yemen, Colombia? You know, obviously you went to Iraq, but you know, you're on the east coast of Africa. Like, hi, did, did anybody tell the guys that are in charge that the war is over there? Yeah. Um, hey, make no mistake, though, undersea uh, with with. Uh, it, with the areas that the, the SDV and the mission set can touch, it, they doing super things. So, uh, again, I wouldn't trade that time uh, for anything and uh, just amazing work there. And it's completely different than what you'll see at the SEAL teams and the boat teams. Right. But uh, amazing nonetheless. And uh, I'll, I'll leave that one at that. But uh, props out to them, do, do super work. All right. Uh, so we're down, the, we're down the home stretch here. We're, we're 2013. Yeah. Um, so I spent uh, working um, in, in an operations type capacity and uh, uh, a, a uh, requirements uh, in, in some cases and a lot of travel and getting the latest and greatest equipment that our personnel would need in the undersea slash maritime environment. Uh, going to a lot of the dive shows and uh, the shot show, for example, and if the equipment was out there, it was uh, better than what we had. Uh, one of my roles was uh, working with all the different vendors and so forth and getting that equipment in. And I was kind of just move around and support uh, Group 3, especially since I had already been there as a senior chief petty officer in the past. It, it come in handy in and, and, uh, being able to touch a lot of different areas within the Group 3 headquarters command. And then we had SDV Team 1 that was right down the road with us. Uh, to where I spent a lot of time over in their compound, especially early on 2013. Uh, but you mentioned Afghanistan a couple of times. Um, while I was at Group 3, uh, toward the end of 2015, um, I get word that, hey, um, we need to put your name in a hat for uh, an Afghanistan role. Uh, there, there's each of our Naval Special Warfare commands have to uh, do the same. they got to provide a name and a qualified body. Um, and uh, so we're going to 
do we have your permission to put your name in? They, they asked that. A uh, good buddy of mine, actually, the operations officer, um, told me that. And uh, it was going to be a three-month uh, deployment over to the Afghanistan as the night chops for Sajida Falfa. Uh, started out at the, which was going to start out for me at the academy compound over there by H. Kaya, if you're familiar with H. Kaya in Kabul, uh, Karzai Airport. Uh, and then later go up to uh, Bath, Barbara Merrifield. But uh started out at three months. Um, so January 4th, I show up over at Sajid Falfa and Night Chops, just like we have uh, planned for Sajid Falfa there at, at the Academy compound. And uh, I do, uh, coming close to my three-month time period ending, well, that time got pushed out to six months. We got pushed out to nine. A lot of details in the middle mm-hmm. that, uh, that we won't cover, but nine. And then by the time I got home, I was uh, over there in Afghanistan and I learned so much about the country and operations. So Jidif Alpha, I mean, they're responsible for all special operations that goes on through uh, uh, Afghanistan. So as the night chops on a, uh, on a nightly basis, I saw everything that was going on over there uh, in uh, the challenging job and a very rewarding job. Uh, so I ended up doing uh, that for five months. And then uh, when the new uh, leadership came in uh, toward the summer of uh, 2016, uh, I ended up going to RS headquarters, the four stars. I was the two star at Sujit of Alpha's head LNO to the four star over at RS headquarters. So I used what I learned there to really help the director of the the CJOC, uh, we called it, uh, there in uh, uh, Kabul. And uh, it, it, it really, for me and I think for those directors as well, uh, that, that ran the night and the day crew uh, paid dividends for what I learned. But it was just under 13 months uh, by the time I got home from Afghanistan uh, when it started as three. So. Uh, just out of curiosity, because I, I, I mean, look, I know the kinetic operations and combat is very different in Afghanistan than it is in Iraq, but what stood out to you as one of the major differences between the two? Uh, well, obviously, I, now I, I kind of always had it in my head and, and uh, I pretty much confirmed it when I went over to Afghanistan that uh, with, with the terrain and uh, the environment, especially everything that happened in uh, 2001, soon after uh, uh, 9-11 with the horse soldiers and so forth. I always followed that mission set and uh, followed it uh, all the way through up until when I showed up over there. So in my head, I always had it uh, for some reason that I, I think I would like to deploy to Afghanistan um, uh, over Iraq or over Yemen. Um, and and, and that, I found that to be true. Um, I can't say that I wanted to stay over there for a full 13 months, but Ended up being good uh, for me, and, uh, and I think all involved. But um, the, it's, the operations were just different. The terrain is obviously way different. Um, the things you have to account for in the fighting season, in the winter, and so forth. Um, it, it's just, I just, it's just a different environment, different challenge. Uh, but combat, uh, like we mentioned, other is combat, and anything could uh, go from being perfectly normal and as planned to 
uh, you're going to second, third, fourth contingencies and, and reacting to whatever happens. So, um, so each each night I I saw something and witnessed something, observed something, and, and reported on something that was completely different than the night before. And it pretty much happened like that for my time there, whether it be at Sagitta Alpha or or as headquarters. Um. So by this time, you've got about twenty years in already. Um, oh. This is 2017, so... Oh, okay, well, you went that far forward, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, by, by the time you uh, get asked to, uh, you know, if you'd be considered, you're, you're over 20 years. I guess I'm, we're, we're, the question I'm leading to is, any thoughts of, of retirement at this point? I mean, are you do you still have more, to, like, you feel like you want to do, or...? Um, well, uh, my time was pretty much up and I, I was eligible to uh, stay on for another four years. Um, I was watching the election close uh, in 2016, to be honest with you. Um, and uh, so the, the election happened 2016 and then uh, 2017, uh, I ended up deciding to stay on uh, and, and do another four years at least. And uh, so that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, again, I, I, I guess I'm just wondering: was that more of a? Had the election gone the other way, would you have decided to get out? Not sure. I, I'm not sure. Um, it was, it was definitely something I was considering. Um, you know, uh, 13 months is uh, just under is, is a long time to spend in that type of environment. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I noticed. A lot of changes just in my last couple of days there at uh, at RS headquarters. Uh, once the it, it didn't take long for a different way of doing business to make it down to that four star headquarters, and then uh, soon after, it, probably at the same time, all the other different units that I was a part of throughout my career. It was just a different way of doing business from a. Uh, um, from a very high leadership position uh, all the way down, if that makes sense. No, it does. It was something I, I was going to give another four years for. Look, I, I mean, I, I say it repeatedly, and, and this isn't a necessarily indictment or insult, but deploying under George W. Bush and then deploying under Obama were two completely different experiences. Um, and that's okay, um, they're different leaders. They're different presidents. They have different philosophies. That's kind of what America's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be the same guy running or gal running things for 35 consecutive years, despite what Congress has turned into. Uh, different conversation for a different day. But my point is, is that, yeah, the, the tenor is different when the president is different. They they execute things differently. So uh, that shouldn't surprise anybody in any size, way, shape, or form. What is ultimately the reason that you do decide to to retire officially? Um, well, uh, <laughs> once again, you, uh, well, I went to Sox South, so I got a couple more outstanding tours once I got back from, um, Afghanistan, went to Sox South, learned how a TSOC, uh, function down in Homestead, Florida, lived in Miami, great area, love South oh, Florida. That must uh, have been a tough assignment, man. That must yeah. have sucked. Yeah. A lot of time down in Chile, uh, um, I, I like travel down to South America. Got a, a lot of close friends still down there to this date. And, 
Um, still people deploying down there uh, on a regular basis. So, so I stay in tune with uh, current events in general, but uh, to those areas, what's going on in those areas and, and so forth. So, uh, so I did my two years at Sock South and uh, great tour there, a lot of travel. And then I reported back out to Special Boat Team 12. Uh, which turned out to be my last command. Uh, that was one of the coastal teams that I brought up earlier out in uh, Coronado. My family wanted, my family loves Coronado, not necessarily California, uh, but, but we always lived in California. Had a great art in Coronado when we did stay out there. And, um, and you know, I, I'm a big fan of Coronado, uh, uh, but uh, California uh, never would probably retire there that's why we're here in Pensacola as much as we did enjoy our time there uh California is just not for us uh the way it's set up and, and so forth uh that's just me but um ended up retiring there and uh a lot of it um was to do with the change in leadership again uh at the very top and uh so there was there was a number of things that played into when I decided to call it a day and uh and, and at this point 31 years one month 12 days uh, it, it was enough uh, you think? I, I, I was up for 05 and there was a lot of weighing uh my options uh, but i ended up choosing to uh get out and do something else well again uh there's nothing to be, uh, at least objectively from the outside, there's nothing to be ashamed of about a 31-year career, regardless of uh, as long as it ends, you know, the right way, uh, which is you deciding to walk out on your own terms. And uh, I think I think that's special. And it, look, you know, there's a lot of us, and I, I deal with it now, you know, uh, within my command. I have to, every two years, anybody who's over 20 years gets a review from the Army uh, and they just decide that people are going to be sent home. You know, they're cutting away the fat, and uh, it's one thing to be to be able to tell the world or tell the Navy, tell the Army, hey, hey, here you go, here's my resignation, I'm, I'm done. I'm leaving on my terms. Not, oh, by the way, you're getting kicked out in the end of December because we're, you're considered excess at this point. So I congratulate you for that. And I, I, That was the long-winded way of saying congratulations. <laughs> nice, thank you. All right, so do you know what you want to do now that you're going to get out of the Navy? Um, well, I mean, the uh, transition process, it's, it's, it's probably, um, I, I think you can easily say it's different for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it's um, what, what's best for me and my family would be completely different for another family and another service member, probably regardless of where they serve. Um, but... Uh, I try to help the service members out any way I can. I try to help veterans out any way I can. Uh, and and I'll, it's a passion of mine, and I will likely do this. And, uh, regardless of what job I end up doing full-time, I will always do my best to find a creative way to uh, do my part in making someone's transition, if I can, better, or making someone's life or at least um, the things I've learned along the way Um a lot of lessons learned. Pass that on to others to where they don't relearn those same lessons. So, so I could go on and on about that. But uh, if nothing else, regardless of what I do uh, with with my full time job, that I'll call it, I will always do what I can to be creative and help veterans and service members and support our military. So, how do you get involved with Jewel TV? Um, 
I have a uh, I have a powerful network that uh, I'm proud of with on LinkedIn and uh, um, similar on Facebook. But um, uh, out of the blue, Tom Julian from Jewel TV. Uh, I guess he saw some of uh, what I do uh, via my LinkedIn profile and uh, sitting watching TV one evening and uh, he sent me a text and like, hey, would you be interested in doing a television series on uh, helping veterans? And uh, at the time, we didn't have a title for it. And, uh, we came up with one later, but uh, but that's how I, it, it fell into my lap, so to speak. And uh, I'm thankful for that. It's definitely just another platform to where if everything's done right, set up right, scheduled right, get the right viewing audience, that um, it could be very good and beneficial for veterans across the board, regardless of what service they're in and uh, what their specialty was within their service. Uh, I found that even in small communities like Naval Special Warfare, um, there, there's a lot of people that uh, with some of these outstanding nonprofit organizations, for example, uh, that do great things in preparing a veteran uh, from for their transition from military service over to the private sector or civilian workplace, corporate America, whatever people want to refer to it as. It's a process. And how these nonprofits, and there's there's many of them doing great things, uh, get from A to Z, it's all different. But at the end of the day, they're all very successful in uh, getting the person through their transition uh, from service out into the civilian workplace and doing well. Uh, with their family being well taken care of, the veteran now is very happy. And the new employer is happy. That's wins across the board, and um, uh, it, uh, and there, there's plenty of room for improvement. But that's always a good thing when when you look at it, and that's three wins that uh, we can be happy about. So, how does the television series that we spoke about earlier start to come about? You're the executive producer of it. Uh, do you have any experience executive producing a TV show? Absolutely not, but I will have a lot. Like any good Navy SEAL, you'll just figure it out as we go along. Yeah, and and there will, without a doubt, be a no-kidding executive producer from, that is one of my four titles, though. Okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, From Hollywood, from uh, California to our location to where we do the filming, uh, without a doubt, will be an executive producer. Uh, But the goal behind it is, though, that 90 to 95%, if not more, is these nonprofits that we're highlighting are going to be the ones that determine what they want the world to see as far as how they do business, what makes them successful. Uh, show briefly where they started, where they're currently at, um, acknowledge their corporate partners that help them get from when they started to where they're at now, their sponsors, their donors, their supporters, and so on. Um, so we'll figure out creative ways when within our 10-show series on how to highlight all of that. Uh, and, uh, again, it's completely different on how they get from start to finish and getting that service member ready. But uh, at the end of the day, it, it's a very good product. Uh, and, and you'll see the analysis and the numbers that uh, that a lot of the nonprofits like to highlight as far as showing their success. And then, obviously, you'll hear it from the service members, uh, veterans and um, I, I'm sure that some of them will get creative and with their famous alumni that they have that they want to show uh, that went through their program, uh, well, then they'll be highlighted as well. 
But uh, if, if nothing else, what this series will do uh, is it will get attention on uh, these programs that are available. And uh, it, it, it kind of baffles me at, some, at sometimes when people just don't know that these programs exist for them. Yeah. Yeah. In the soft community, the spec ops community as a whole, uh, there, there's many programs that we have the option in taking advantage of. And then from there, the officers generally all know, generally, not always, but all know about these programs existing, uh, the benefits of attending them, and so forth. And same with the senior enlisted, for most part, from E9 to E7. But beyond that, uh, there is a lot of gaps and, and seams that need to be filled as far as getting the word out uh, not every program is, is right for uh, everyone. I mean, it's the person, once they are knowledgeable in these programs existing and, and where they take place, how they take place, how they go about their business and preparing them, need to pick the right one for them. But, but I want to make sure they at least know that they exist, and then from there they can pick the right one for them. And uh, but, but it's a wide range of, of folks that... Uh, especially in the support type departments and divisions within soft commands that don't even know that they exist. And uh, before I would get out, I would just walk around, and especially after I had already got a billet, I went to the Honor Foundation program, outstanding program, uh, learned a ton, it's a three-month program. We met two days a week. Um, and during COVID, it was virtual uh, via Zoom. So, so I learned a ton. Uh, about it and uh, very thankful that I had the opportunity to attend uh, but there's many other orgs that are, are similar that do great things uh, just do them a little bit different there. Uh, but but when I had my billet and when I finished I would walk around to even in our small community to the support divisions and departments and I'd just talk to people they'd tell me uh, that they're getting out in a couple of uh, months trying to figure out what they're doing and I'd ask them are you, uh, you are you going to attend the Honor Foundation or a similar program? And you look at me like I'm crazy, you know. Uh, and I'm like, you haven't heard of that. And uh, sure enough, a lot of times they have it. And then, but that's happening in uh, in a lot of different branches, uh, especially the non-salt uh, communities, to where it's hit or miss, and uh, whether they've even heard they exist. So, so we're going to get that word out. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm set on it, and uh, I'll, I'll find other creative ways to um, to also get the word out. At some point, we're going to increase our marketing um, uh, uh, platform and um, all of the info that we send out. Uh, but we're expecting to shoot uh, late summer. It's looking more like early fall, and then at some point in the fall after we get uh, everybody's schedules from all of the participating nonprofits. I'll be able to put the 10-week series together, run it by Tom Julian for approval, and then uh, we'll go from there. But, uh, I mean, that's, they, that's incredible uh, just because it's, like you said, it's a, it's amazing with how many veterans service organizations there are out there and how little <laughs> veterans know that they actually exist. Right? Like you, you, you have to find somebody else who went through the program there to actually – you know, understand what it does and, and what the benefits are and it's everything else. And you just sit there and your jaws in the floor and say, yeah, this is great. This They do this, 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 and this. And you're like, really? I, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, there, there's a lot of people that just don't know. And we're going to fix that. 
But uh, like in our community, and we do a good job, especially with outstanding organizations like our Navy SEAL Foundation or UDT SEAL or, or, uh, or SEAL Family Foundation. I could go on and on about uh, how our community and, and they definitely get the word out. It just doesn't trickle down to um, all the locations that it needs to and all the different personnel right. that it needs to. Um, but, but we will fix that. And then I mentioned earlier that veterans in transition, it's a broad term. Um, and, and we came up with that and designed it that for a reason. Uh, you, we already covered a service member getting out, whether they did five years or 40 years, uh, going through that process. Uh, but veterans in transition also applies to our service members uh, that in some cases have been in combat or in combat-type environments ever since 9-11 happened. And some are still, to this date, going on regular rotations in and out of combat zones. Yeah. Uh, so in some cases, people come back, uh, regardless of service, especially when they've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, you name it. They come back, and then some people just need additional assistance in, in, in some way or another. Uh, so a uh, uh, a service member that comes back that needs to be paired up with a dog, or a service dog, or a service animal, that these nonprofits in, in this arena or this realm, they do super things. So we're going to highlight them as well. And uh, in some cases, they come back and uh, uh, pairing our uh, operators up with horses does wonderful things, and, and the data supports it. Uh, not everybody needs a service dog. Uh, so highlight these uh, nonprofits that uh, that work in this area. Um, some do fly fishing and get some back into the environment. Some do surf therapy. Uh, some take their uh, their veterans diving and put them in the undersea environment, nice warm water, not cold water, and to where they can really enjoy their time and uh, and see the undersea uh, realm. So um, so veterans in transition. It's very broad. A lot of different nonprofits doing super work, regardless of whether they get service members prepared for the civilian industry or uh, they're, they're just needing some type of additional assistance before they transition back into the community, uh, back to their families in some cases. Uh, there, there's just a lot of work in that area. And then, and then you have all the different special meds, uh, the CBD, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and there's a number of things in and then obviously that's not inclusive with, within the medical uh, area or, or field, uh, all the things that is being done to help our uh, service members that need that type of assistance getting uh, and getting it. Um, so, so Veterans in Transition is very broad, and uh, we're going to cover a number of things that will be entertaining. I have very few left and right limits. Uh, i got to keep it family-friendly, and we got to keep it entertaining once we get our audience, build it. And then, uh, and then that way, after the ten week series this year, this fall, uh, we'll have another one lined up, and, and, and so on. So, much all more right. Uh, before uh, we, we we let you go, I do have to ask about uh, Warriors and whiskey. So, what exactly is the proper corn to mass ratio for the best whiskey out there? Well, you know, you're asking the wrong uh, expert on uh, on whiskey. You're an expert on drinking I'm, it, right? You can say I'm an expert on whiskey with that because I'm a bourbon fan. Uh, so but I. I also enjoy my scotch. Yes, same. As well, the single malt, especially. But you know, to each their own. Some some people like it on the rocks. Some people like it neat. Some people like it with water. You know, I 
everybody has a different opinion. But for me, I like bourbon. Colonel Taylor is is one of my personal favorites, and then um, uh, but but everybody's different. But Warriors and Whiskey. I'm an ambassador uh, in the Pensacola, Florida area okay. for Warriors and Whiskey. And at the end of the day, there's three clubs. You got Warriors and Whiskey Club, you got Veterans Whiskey Club, and then you have Veterans Cigar Club. Uh, well, the the two Veterans Clubs that the name says it all. You, you need to be either an active duty service member or a veteran to join those clubs. But the Warriors and Whiskey Club, uh, and you can find the, each of the groups on Facebook and the same with LinkedIn and, uh, and Instagram as well. Um, but uh, Warriors and Whiskey, that includes service members. That includes veterans, first responders, families of veterans, families of first responders. So basically anybody that wishes to – uh, to join the Warriors and Whiskey Club, you go to one of those groups, you sign up. Um, I, I have some business cards that I can send out via support. Um, but, but they're easy to find, they're easy to sign up for. And the whole intent, or the main intent behind the Whiskey Clubs and the Veterans Clubs in general is bring our service members after they get out, uh, they become a veteran, they move out to uh, all areas of the, uh, the country, and uh, they lose contact in a lot of cases with their teammates, with their friends that they serve. With. Sure. Uh, their, their combat buddies, their swim buddies, and so forth. So it, in all of these different cities and states across the U.S., it's just another way to bring people together, uh, bring the families together. And whether you want to talk about over bourbon, over beer, it don't have to be at a whiskey club. It can be at a, at a brewery. It can be at a beer club. But bring people together, have the families there. Uh, have a good plan for getting home because uh, it does involve drinking one way or another. <laughs> um, and uh, so bring them together. You can, sh- you can share sea stories, you can share combat stories, funny stories, whatever. But but once you're together, then then it's all on the group and uh, so forth to uh, to discuss and talk about whatever they want to uh, for that three hour, four hour period, wherever you your venue may be. Uh, but but uh, we're growing. There's like 58 of us. The last time I looked, as far as ambassadors, uh, it's growing every week. And uh, but it's up well over 20,000 for uh, the members in the Warriors and Whiskey Club. We need to grow that. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, we're uh, uh, constantly looking and and in the process of adding nonprofits to where a lot of the proceeds, uh, like Canines for Warriors, for example. With Warriors and Whiskey, a lot of the proceeds go to uh, canines for Warriors uh, when, uh, uh, when when we hold events and and uh, regardless of the type of events. So getting creative, uh, we're we're always looking for creative ways to to help out the nonprofits, bring people together, and uh, those three clubs do a great job at it. They're growing uh, across the nation, but we need to grow them quickly. Well, if you're looking for an ambassador in the Atlanta area, I'm, I'm volunteering just for the news. Hey, I got it. Uh, so and, uh, you'll be, um, we'll be in comms pretty soon. So I, I just, anything for for a good glass of brown liquor. That's really, I mean, you know, it's uh, that and a cigar puts a puts a nice little punctuation on the end of a day, to say the least. So, uh, so and and finally, what I mean, what else are you doing other than the the TV stuff and and this? I mean, is there anything else you have left, in, or is is retirement life treating you good otherwise? Well, I mean, uh, it's it's kind of dynamic, and uh, a lot of good things. Uh, there's a lot of work in 
uh, setting up the Jewel TV series, for right. example. And uh, there's no staff. Um, and uh, once the TV starts, the show starts airing, uh, get a good following, then then obviously uh, that will be very rewarding at some point. But but in the process of setting everything up, getting all the schedules, uh, until that happens, you know, there, there's the work is up front. And uh, the, the good that will come of it from helping the vets and everything else uh, is on the back end. Um, and uh, so security work, um, I, I help out other, uh, the I, I try to, in the uh, business world, and uh, we have coastal waste services, for example, to where uh, I'm a contractor or consultant that uh, works with them. It's a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. Uh, a former Apache pilot uh, did some great things over in Afghanistan, runs uh, the uh, business along with his co-partner and just doing super things. So um, I, I try to help out uh, in that area and, uh, and so forth whenever I can. So, so I have my hands in a number of different things and to include the security realm, and, uh, but, but the majority of my time and effort right now goes with those two programs, uh, Warriors and Whiskey, definitely the Jewel TV series and getting all the dates back to work. Uh, we can start our filming, and that's going to be at areas all over the U.S. Uh, basically, we will go to the nonprofits at the events that we want to showcase. So uh, that's going to be all over the place. Uh, one of my roles is sponsor development uh, with Jewel TV. So in uh, working with the corporate partners um, and uh, the sponsors, and the donors and supporters of, of, uh, of each of the nonprofit, and they're all different. Uh, I, I will possibly be reaching out to uh, them, seeing if they could uh, that we could cover all the advertising costs uh, and and have a title sponsor that's still a working process or a progress. So so much more to follow on that end uh, once our marketing campaign uh, goes a little bit more steam. Well, like any good Navy SEAL, uh, they're, they're the only easy day was yesterday, right? And no rest for the weary. So I, I assume that mantra will stay with you even though you're out of uniform now, uh, as you go forward. Absolutely. So my, my days are accounted for, uh, always trying to find creative ways to, um, help out, help others when I can. And, uh, and that, that makes me feel better and nothing else. All right. Well, again, uh, it is called, uh, veterans in transition from Jewel TV, J U L TV. Look forward to this series this fall. People can connect with you, as you mentioned on LinkedIn, uh, if they want to do so there. And Warriors and Whiskey, uh, wherever you are across the United States, sign up uh, and connect with fellow veterans or service members across the board. Tim, 30-plus years is absolutely nothing to, uh, to to shake a stick at, right? I mean, it is it is not easy to stay in any job for that long, particularly the military, given all that they've asked uh, of you, your family, and, and those around you to the sacrifices that you've made. So, a humble thanks uh, for those many years of service and certainly uh, your candor and sharing them with us and, and everything that you have going on. I'm looking forward to seeing the television series and, and certainly glad that we got a chance to connect. And, uh, and, and just as always, man, wishing you nothing but the best. Hey, thank you. And uh, I appreciate you uh, giving me this platform. I appreciate you having me on. Hope everyone has a good day and cheers. Tim Fedrick, thanks for being a part of the Hazard Ground. 
You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.